Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 22 of Discovering the Old Testament. Last time I made two promises for what we would talk about next time, which is to say this time. I mentioned discussing the world of the Canaanites and David's rise to power as king of Israel. Unfortunately, both subjects turned out to be just too big to cover in a single episode. So this week we're going to take a look at those Canaanites and other foreign nations that the Israelite religious establishment was so worried about. Think of it as competitive analysis, if you like. The word Canaanite comes from a word that means traitor. That's an apt description of these people. Some of the major centers of Canaanite people were on the coast, Byblos, Tyre, and Sidon, with others inland, such as Hatsor, Megiddo, Gezer, and Lachish. Eventually, these cities of the interior became Israelite cities, but they were originally built by Canaanites. The coastal towns were vibrant trading centers. In fact, the Canaanites lived throughout the entire coastal region, from the borders of Egypt in the south to the southern coast of what today is modern Turkey. Later, a distinction grew up between southern Palestine, which was named for the Philistine people in the southern half, and the Phoenicians in the north. Both were Canaanites. The Phoenicians were named for the word describing the purple dye extracted from the murex shellfish, which was famous throughout the Mediterranean basin. Canaanite traders brought the goods and wealth of the Near East to their cities. Archaeology confirms active trade with Egypt, Crete, Babylon, and the interior. The Canaanites were urbane, sophisticated, and rich. That richness must have made a serious impression on the incoming Israelites, who were culturally polar opposites of the Canaanites. Not only did the Israelites not have a material culture to match the diversity of the Canaanites, but their religion, which was based on a god who played the role of an entire pantheon, must have seemed sparse as well. That's because another area where the Canaanites were rich was the size of their pantheon. Where the Israelites had a single god, the Canaanites had literally hundreds. One reason for this was because Canaanite religion, like many religious systems in the ancient Near East, was a system with interchangeable parts, so to speak. For example, the Canaanite god Baal could be identified with the analogous god from any other foreign system, such as Marduk from Babylon or Ashur from Assyria. All three were storm gods, and the Canaanites didn't really worry too much about the specifics. A storm god was a storm god, so they could easily transfer their devotion to any of the above, especially if that god's army or government were currently victorious. This created a problem because any Canaanites who declared loyalty to Yahweh might do so out of expediency, but continue to worship Baal or worship Yahweh as though he were Baal. Canaanites also had many, many local gods or lesser divine beings associated with rivers or other natural features. Worship of the dead, of ancestors, was also a large part of Canaanite religion. 
This entailed rituals and sacrifices to the dead, which was apparently part of the duties of those still living to help ensure that the afterlife for departed family members was slightly less uncomfortable. Canaanites also believed they could elicit favors from their departed dead. Canaanite religion exerted a powerful attraction on the Israelites. Archaeological excavations of Israelite towns always uncover plenty of amulets and pagan idol figures of Canaanite gods and goddesses. For many years, the only accounts we had of Canaanite religion were in the Old Testament, plus a few references from Greek literature. The Old Testament is hardly a sympathetic or unbiased witness. All that changed in 1929 when French archaeologists uncovered clay tablets written in a previously unknown Semitic language using a new type of alphabetic cuneiform. The discovery at Rashamra in northern Syria turned out to be the ancient city of Ugarit, which gives its name to the newfound language, Ugaritic. Ugaritic was a Canaanite language quite closely related to Biblical Hebrew. It was used from the 14th through the 12th centuries BCE, when the city of Ugarit was destroyed by an earthquake. Among the texts found were many religious documents and literary texts, which give us a new window on ancient Canaanite religion. We have stories, poems, prayers, god lists, and plenty of material that puts the discovery of the Ugaritic texts and language on par with the decipherment of Akkadian cuneiform or Egyptian hieroglyphics. One of the things we've learned is that the Canaanite gods could best be described as the powers of nature personified. Canaanite religion was a nature religion, although it's not a stretch to call it a cosmological religion. So where a god like Baal personified the storm and violent weather, other gods personified other forces that together made up the natural order, growing crops, drought, sexual fertility, death, and so on. The point of Canaanite religion was to secure the favor of these forces by placating the gods that controlled them. The business of fertility loomed large in the Canaanite culture, as it did in every other culture in the ancient Near East. During a time when the harvest or the lack of it determined a community's future, fertility of the fields was a very big deal. High infant and child mortality also demanded as much human fertility as possible. Rituals invoked fertility via sexual union. For example, at the annual New Year festivals, a king representing Baal would sexually join with a high priestess in a ritual intended to bring fertility to the land and the people. The idea was that this imitation of the gods would produce the desired effect on their part. This was not unique to Canaanites, incidentally. This heros gamos, or sacred marriage, was also found in Babylonian and Assyrian religion, and most likely came from there. The Ugaritic texts do not have any specific mention of sexuality rituals performed at the lower levels of society. Although the Canaanites recognized hundreds of gods, there are really only six major figures in the Canaanite pantheon that need concern us. The first is the father and ostensible chief of the gods, El. If that name sounds a little like Elohim, it should. It is, essentially, 
the Semitic word for God. El is the creator God who made everything, but is distant, less involved in human affairs. He is kind and merciful and heads up the council of the gods. Baal, as we have said, is a storm god who is responsible for the rains that make the crops grow and vegetation generally. He is the more active deity who oversees the daily affairs of gods and humanity. The word Baal in Hebrew means lord or master in a political sense, but Baal is also called a king, lord of heaven and earth, and also bears the title Alian Baal, which means Baal the prevailer. Baal shows up in many forms and manifestations, but gradually they merged into a single deity. Baal worship also gradually supplanted the worship of El. Asherah is El's spouse. She is El's advisor and a goddess over the sea, although she is not clearly associated with fertility in the Ugaritic tablets. The biblical prophets tie her very closely with fertility rituals and cults. In the Bible, an Asherah is used to describe a place of worship or shrine to Ashtarte, rather than the goddess herself. Anat is the sister of Baal, or maybe his wife, or perhaps both. It's hard to tell exactly. This goddess is not to be trifled with. She is a bloodthirsty warrior who delights in slaughter, but who is also a goddess of love. In that sense, she is rather like the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. When, in one tale, Baal is killed, she takes fearsome revenge on Mot, the god of death, not only killing him, but winnowing him and grinding him like grain, scattering what's left of him in the field. This allows Baal to be resurrected. Ashtarte is the third major Canaanite goddess. Her cult was found throughout the Canaanite territories and is also strongly associated with fertility rituals. Statuettes of Astarte depict a naked goddess, often pregnant, holding her breasts forward as though offering them to the viewer. Israelite settlements excavated so far yield just as many Astarte statues as one is likely to find in any other Canaanite town. The last god is Yam who is the personified primordial ocean and uncontrolled seas. In the Epic of Baal, discovered among the Ugaritic tablets, Baal and Yam do battle for control of the world. Baal is able to defeat Yam and so impose his will on the cosmos. With this victory comes kingship and the right to build a new palace from which to rule his kingdom. If you remember our discussion of cosmic battles from way back in part three of this podcast, this will sound familiar. It is the classic pattern of creation by combat that gives Baal his right to rule. The problem with Canaanite religion intruding on Yahwism begins almost straight out of the gate. 
what is probably assumed on the part of the authors of Exodus, but not appreciated by the modern reader, is that the golden calf fabricated as an object of worship is almost certainly not an Egyptian deity. The most likely candidate is that it represents an early form of El. In other words, the Israelites were not syncretizing with Egyptian religion. Instead, they were reverting back to very ancient roots of their origins in Canaan. This episode is not one of casting away the final ties to Egypt, but a foretaste of the trouble that was to come. However, just what that trouble was is not always as easy to identify as we would like. There is some clear divergence between what is found in the Ugaritic literature and the description of Canaanite religion based on the Bible. One thing that is conspicuously absent is any clear evidence of temple prostitutes. These were both men and women who, according to the Bible, offered themselves to worshippers at Canaanite holy places, shrines, and temples as part of their worship practices. The Greek historian Herodotus also mentions temple prostitutes in Babylon, although evidence lacks for this in Babylonian religion too. Ugaritic literature is silent on this subject. The Asherah poles we mentioned earlier also lack confirmation in the Ugaritic texts. The Bible describes these as being situated next to altars dedicated to Yahweh. There is also important inscriptional evidence from the sites of Kuntilat Ajrud and Kerbet el Qom. These are basically pieces of graffiti, prayers offered to Yahweh and his Asherah. The simplest explanation is that the people who carved these prayers assumed Asherah was the consort of Yahweh. If you leave aside the polytheistic implications for a moment, this seems completely reasonable. Other male gods had a consort, why not Yahweh? This takes us back to the two versions of the creation of humanity in Genesis. The version in chapter 1 makes clear that male and female are both attributes of the divine image replicated in humanity. There's no separating them, and no clear superposition of one above the other. The Yahwist version, in chapter 2, where God creates woman from Adam's rib, places women in an unmistakably secondary and subservient role. The version of the Bible that we now have went through a lot of editing, and many scholars, myself included, believe that there used to be a lot more about the divine feminine than we see now. This was quite likely a serious point of contention, but the monotheistic imperative won out. Canaanite religion, with its myriad gods, male and female, might have been just a little too close to an Israelite religion that allowed for a divinity that included both male and female, hence its danger to Israelite monotheism. Like the Israelites, Canaanite religion used animal sacrifices as a means to address the gods. Many of these sacrifices were eaten by the priests and those bringing the offering, rather like the Israelite Shalamim offering. It was an occasion for a sacred meal or banquet. Sometimes the offerings were fed to the poor, the orphans, and the widows. One aspect of Canaanite worship that we do find in ancient texts is the enjoyment of wine. Lots and lots of wine. 
In fact, one of the duties of a good son, according to one Ugaritic text, is to help his father make it back home when he's too stonkered to do so on his own. There is a rather entertaining tablet in which the god El gets thoroughly plastered at a feast and becomes very sick on his way home. The story seems to be a preface to a remedy for the after-effects of overindulgence, but that part of the text is too broken to read clearly. Another similarity to Israelite practice was the early Canaanite use of many local shrines, often located on a hilltop or other elevated location. These are most likely the high places mentioned in the Bible and associated with Canaanite worship. Another aspect of sacrifice associated with the Canaanites was human sacrifice. The evidence for this is sketchier, but it does appear that at least the Phoenicians practiced child sacrifice. The classic form of this, of course, is sacrifice to the god Molech or Moloch. Some older scholarship had dismissed the idea that there was a god by this name, rather that the word referred to a kind of sacrifice. However, more recent scholarship makes clearer that not only was there a cult of Molech, this cult was of Canaanite origin, and it existed among the Israelites. The Hebrew Bible also mentions that child sacrifices took place at a location near Jerusalem called Tophet, which translates roughly as the roasting place. The prophets, Leviticus, and the Deuteronomic school are united in their condemnation of this practice, although Ezekiel chapter 20 tries to argue that Yahweh himself instituted this practice himself in order to horrify his people. Why he takes this particular tack isn't clear, but what is clear is that not only did child sacrifice exist among the Israelites, in many cases it was believed to be part of Yahweh worship. The Carthaginians, who were a late offshoot of the Phoenicians, were famous in antiquity for practicing child sacrifices, at least according to the Greek historian Plutarch and early Christian writers such as Tertullian. Archaeological excavations in Carthage and other Phoenician cities have uncovered some large cemeteries containing many remains of infant children, although it's not clear that these are sacrificial victims. One problem with this is that the biblical account and the works of later Roman authors had a motive for painting their enemies as cruel and uncivilized, as the Romans did even after they defeated the Carthaginians. Modern historians cannot ignore that bias, especially when textual and firm archaeological evidence for Canaanite child sacrifice remains elusive. Apart from the issue of child sacrifices, there were a number of issues about Canaanite religion that would cause worry to Israelite religious authorities. The problem was not only that Canaanite religion could be very foreign to Israelite religion, as in the case of child sacrifice, but that it was very similar as in the use of animal sacrifices, or spoke to concerns such as fertility that were on the mind of everyone living in those days long ago. Like Yahwism, Canaanite religion included a system of ethics, hinted at by evidence of provisions of sacrificed animals as food for the poor and the vulnerable. We have seen how the Israelite religious institutions, such as sacrifice and purity regulations, adapted themselves to incorporate the basic assumptions of monotheism. 
The defining characteristic of the Israelite pantheon was that it was a pantheon of one. However, the religious historian must allow for official versus popular religion, and the fact that the Hebrew people had Canaanite roots. Hebrew is a Canaanite language, very similar to others in the region, making communication between Israelites and their neighbors, and thus an exchange of ideas, fairly simple. Not only would religious Israelites have dismissed the idea of a polytheistic religion and the cosmology that it implies, but some modern scholars maintain the Canaanite gods were, well, rather dysfunctional and displayed human frailties in, well, biblical proportions. The argument goes that the God of the Old Testament was not so capricious. It is true that Yahweh, unlike his Canaanite counterparts, was not restrained by natural cycles such as the seasons. We also don't see evidence of Canaanite gods intervening or interacting so directly with their human worshippers as we see in the Old Testament. That said, although Yahweh could offer generous mercy and compassion where his people had little cause to receive it, the God of the Old Testament could still be more than a little dangerous. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.